John chapter 6. This morning we may have a bit of a more interesting title to the sermon. Seems a strange way to talk about it, a gospel that insults. And yet that really becomes for us what it is Christ is expressing to this group of nearly 20,000 people that at the end of what Jesus says here, they all leave. There is something in the gospel message that is not nice. There is something in the gospel message that is honest and that is humiliating for mankind in his fallen state. We cannot, we cannot share the gospel if we ignore that aspect. And so this morning, one of the great, uh, one of the great uh, snafus of preaching is to give away your application at the beginning. But I'm going to do that. My application at the beginning. When we are evangelizing, when we are sharing the gospel, my friends, do not make it all about how this will make your life better. Make it about the glory of God. That will be the application Let me try to deliver on that promise. Let's go to John chapter 6, verses 41 through 59. Now, you know we have been going a bit slower through John chapter 6 because, well, Christmas kind of had a way of interrupting us. But then also, John chapter 6 is so full of the concepts of the gospel because it's where John selects to share with his readers the first full expression of what it is Christ is coming here to do. Christ was not coming here just to turn water to wine. Christ was not coming here just to talk to the woman at the well about there's this water that you can drink that you'll never thirst again. He's not just coming here to heal a blind man or a lame man. He's not just coming here for these things. All of these are building up to the reality of what it is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to find real life. Not just a continuance of us breathing and eating and sleeping and waking up. Real life. And not just purpose and happiness. Real life that death cannot touch. An indestructible life. A virtue that does not come from just good practice, but a virtue that comes from the Holy Spirit himself. Real life that originates only in God. This is how salvation works. My friend, it is no different with Christian maturity. It is a work of God. It is a work of God. It is why the fruit of the Spirit is called such. It's not the fruit of good exertion. It is not the fruit of trying really hard to love, joy, peace, and patience in your life. It is the work of the Spirit of God, bringing from us things that were not there. And of necessity inside the gospel, these things are present even before we come to salvation. When I say these things, I'm referring to the work of God, which means the instigator of salvation itself is not us. Even when we share the word of God with other people, even when we share the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are not in any way assuming that we can convince people of the saving grace of Christ in and of ourselves. It is not our message. It is not our gospel. It is not those things that call us to task. It is God's gospel and his glory. 
Let's read this and go to it. Let me ask you to stand in honor of God and his word. John chapter 6, verses 41 through 59. The word of the Lord. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is, this, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them and said, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from God. He comes uh, excuse me, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that, the one may, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It's not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Our Father, we pray for your spirit to illumine our hearts, not because we lack understanding, though we certainly do, but, Father, because we lack a love of the things that you love. And so we pray, Father, you work on our desires. You work in us what your word alone can do, which is to drive us to your cross, to drive us to your grace and to your glory. We pray, Father, that that be even the goal of our fellowship this morning. We pray, Father, also for this passage. We thank you for preserving these words, for inspiring these words, that we may see them this morning Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and have life in our bodies as well. We thank you, Father, for all of these things. We pray for your blessing on this morning. In your son's name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. John chapter 6, what a challenging uh, series of, of verses. I think you can see why I didn't divvy this up. Because where do you draw lines in the middle of this? Where do you chop this up? The reality is you can't. Either you're going to go a single sermon on each phrase... Or you're going to have to take this chunk and discuss it all as a whole. I've decided to be merciful and to take it as a chunk and to discuss it as a whole, lest we be in John 6 until July. The reality, though, of what Jesus said, and there's nothing wrong with that for those who do that. I know several people who have done that. I'm not going to do that. Um, The reality of what the gospel expresses to us is that there is absolutely no way that you would want it unless God was driving you towards it. Not a single person is a Christian because they sought out God. 
Every person that is a Christian is a Christian because God sought them out first. What is it that the scriptures say? Why is it that we love God? It is not because we found it in ourselves to love God. No, he first loved us. And he set his grace on us that we may become new people and may walk in a new life and have not only just hope that this world gives or peace that this world gives, but a hope that doesn't disappoint and a peace that doesn't make any sense to us. We have inside the gospel promises, eternal, promises true, and promises unbreakable because they don't depend on us. Imagine for a second if it was flipped around in reality. Imagine if the Christian life was just you making up your mind to pursue some new interest. How long would you stay with that interest, do you think? Have you ever had any hobbies? A hobby that you pursue for a couple years, stamp collecting or gardening or something like this, that maybe a few months or a few years or even a decade or two, and it kind of just falls by the wayside in the natural order of life. That's how natural desires and interests go. We grow, we have new ones. I collected coins when I was 12 years old. I thought it was going to be my life's purpose to collect coins. It turned out to be about a two-year-long purpose. And an expensive one at that. That wasn't really fun for me. But at the end of all of that, the coins, how much did they mean to me? Nowhere near as much as they meant to me at the beginning. This is the waxing old of desires and of interests that is, that's part of our natural life. If Christianity or if salvation was simply a work of us, that's what it would start looking like. It would look all new and glamorous and interesting at the beginning, and then it would just start becoming boring. It would become problematic for us. It would become something that waxes old and loses its interest. But that's not the Christian life, is it? The Christian life, as it goes, becomes deeper and becomes more concerned about the gospel, more fascinated with the work of God, more interested in the glory of God. It grows year by year by year, and it gets deeper and broader and stronger and more powerful in a way that we cannot make sense of because it's not a normal desire. This, my friends, is one of those aspects of the new life that shows up in the life of every Christian. It's not a desire that just waxes old. It's not just an addendum to our life. It is new life. It means we desire different food. It means should we even starve as Christians, we're still satisfied and content with Christ. Why? Because he is the true food from heaven. This is where Christ is speaking to his people here and he's saying, look, You think you know what your desires ought to be because you're looking at the fact that yesterday I fed all 20,000 of you. And today you're looking for more bread. Don't look for the bread that perishes. You're going to eat this bread and tomorrow you're going to be hungry again. Look at you. You're still here hungry again. But then, like all things and all kings and all interests, eventually you'll be just like your fathers wandering in the wilderness. Bread from heaven every morning and grumbling that we don't have the melons back in Egypt. And that was perfect bread. And that's what they were reminding him of. He says, look, if you want to be like Moses, Moses was able to give us real cool bread from heaven. Be like Moses. Give us bread every single day. And he says, that still wouldn't be enough. You'd be just like your fathers. Eventually, you'll lose interest. I'm not here to give you physical bread. 
I'm here to give you me. The meal that will never stop satisfying. The water that will never stop quenching thirst. This is Christ speaking of himself in the gospel and how deep of a satisfying effect he has on those who believe in him. They will want for nothing more. They will want for him. And should physical bread be withheld from them in time of famine, they will not call upon God as losing his trust from them. No, we will face our own death because we are satisfied with Christ. Listen to the words of the martyrs. They're not complaining that God is not delivering them. No, they're just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going to the furnace and saying, we serve a God who is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we still will not bow the knee to any other God or worship you. Such was their satisfaction in the God who had saved them. For Christians, it is even more so. We cannot not be satisfied with something else. Excuse me. That was a double negative and it got backwards in my head. We cannot not be satisfied with Christ instead of something else. That's what I meant to say. Double negatives are hard at this point in the morning. Look where the passage starts in verse 41. What were the Jews doing? The same thing their fathers did when they ate manna every day. Grumbling. This is what God has sent us. You claim to be from God. This is what God has sent us. Let us grumble. The Jews were grumbling about him. In the exact same way, this bread of from heaven, in the exact same way that their fathers had been grumbling about manna in the wilderness, they were grumbling about Christ himself. And they are saying to him that we would rather manna in the wilderness than whatever you're offering. That's actually better than what you're offering. And Jesus is expressing to them, not only is that not better than what I'm offering, that whole thing was just a picture of me. I am the bread that came out of heaven. Look at the past tense he says here. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And then they belittle him. The guy that just made them magical bread the day before that they hunted down to do a new miracle and they were going to make him king. And what is their response when he doesn't do what they want? Belittle him. Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph? It's just a carpenter. Yeah, a carpenter you wanted to make king 10 minutes ago. Just a carpenter. His father and mother we know. How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered him and says, don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. First insult. And yes, if you don't read it as an insult, read his words again. The reason that you are not happy and satisfied with Christ, he says to them, is because my father and your father is not drawing you. He's not bringing you to me. He has already stated that all that the father brings to him, he will not lose and will never cast out. 
They were depending on a genealogical hope. We have Abraham as our father. We live in Israel. We serve in Jerusalem. None of this will save you. And they are looking to be satisfied in the midst of this. And what is it that Jesus is saying to them? The reason you're not satisfied, even with the message that I am speaking to you this morning, is because you're looking for a different type of food. You are aiming at this, and I'm promising you the stars. You're frustrated that I won't lift you up one foot. I'm giving you a solar system, a universe. They want a baguette. He's giving them the gospel. When John the Baptist went to prison, and because circumstances tend to cause doubt to rise up within us, He sent his two disciples to Jesus and say, are you the one we're waiting for or should we wait for another? John the Baptist was his cousin. He knew before he was born that Jesus was the Messiah, but such is the insidious nature of doubt that it'll get in wherever you let it have any foothold. And so John the Baptist was frustrated with this. If you're truly the Messiah, why am I in prison facing my own demise? Do you know the answer that Jesus sent back with John the Baptist's disciples? He doesn't say, oh, yes, I'm here. Just go make sure John the Baptist is okay. No, no. Go back and tell John what you have seen. The blind see. The lame walk. The mute speak. The deaf hear. And the poor are given lots of money. The poor have the gospel preached to them. And he sends them back to John the Baptist. That is satisfying to him. In prison, about to be beheaded. How is that satisfying? John the Baptist had all sorts of concepts about his life. These people had all sorts of concepts about how their day was going to go. The day before, it had worked out that way. If it was right then, why isn't it right now? Jesus fed them 5,000 households, fed them with just a pile of bread, and then there was even more than that left over. The next day, they wanted the same sign. They wanted the same picture. But Jesus expresses to them, not only was it not about the bread, it wasn't even about just the gospel. It was about me. Not only is that already bread from heaven, I am the bread from heaven. You can't even want this unless the Father is drawing you. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The paraphrase there is, this is why you're not looking for ultimate answers today. You're only looking for the bread that perishes. And so he gives them that correction. Do not look for bread that perishes. Those who eat bread that perish, perish along with it. Those who worship false gods will perish along with them. Those who worship God other than what he is will also perish. We must be in submission to what he says and who he is. And so what does he say? 
the ones who the Father does send him and draws to him, Jesus says, I will raise him up on the last day. Resurrection. New life. New bodies. New hope. It is written in the prophets, he says to them, they will all be taught by God. Look what he is claiming for himself. They are standing in the presence of the God through whom all things were created and they just want some bread. Imagine wanting to return to the Garden of Eden just for the fruit. Imagine wanting to follow Christ just because you want to feel better. This this aspect here is what Jesus is saying. This is not just to solve one problem in your life. It is not just to solve two problems in your life. It is to give you real life. New hearts, new desires, new loves. I can tell you honestly, before I was a Christian, I did not love the word of God. I knew it. I didn't care about it. It didn't mean anything to me. I spent years as a Christian praying for a love of his word because I knew it was a desire that was aberrant in my own heart. And you know how long that took? For someone in their 20s, 11 years praying for something is a long time. And to me, it was an eternity. But it was a love of something that I knew I ought to have and did not naturally have. It's not like when you become a Christian, all of a sudden, you love all brand new things. It takes time. Some people, yes. Some people, no. It takes time. New loves, new desires, this new life. This is the process of sanctification. This is what God continually works on us with and is patient with us. Verse 45, he says, they will all be taught by God. This is what the prophets have said. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Me, no exceptions. And so he says to these Jewish people, he says, you claim that God is your father? You claim that God is your father? I can prove to you he's not. You're not coming to me. He said, well, that that seems strange. He hasn't even barely announced who he is. No, but they would recognize the words that he was saying. They would recognize how similar they are to the promises of God from the beginning of creation onwards. They would recognize without ever having met Jesus who he is the moment he opens his mouth. Why? Because it is consistent with everything and because it is not based on what our knowledge is. It is based on God saving us. He ensures that they see it. Which means, dear Christian, as you are sitting here, you becoming a Christian is not owed to you or to the person who is faithfully preaching to you. Or however it came. I know me, I became a Christian on my own in my, in my room when I was a teenager or when I was 11 years old. That was a thanks to a myriad of people that had shared the gospel with me from Sunday school teachers to my parents to my own copy of the scriptures. But at the ultimate sense, it is God himself who saved me. It is not something I did. It is not something where I said, you know what, from today onward, I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to make all these changes. I'm going to do all this stuff. If it was up to me, guys, it would have passed away as fast as my coin collection did. 
I've had many interests like that, that crop up. I wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a chemist. I wanted to be all sorts of things. All sorts of interests that, you know, once you learn them for a couple years, you realize, I don't want to do that my whole life. Chemistry was one of those. He says to them, you are claiming to want the things that the people of God wanted in the wilderness. You claim that you would be on the side of those who are thankful for the manna, and yet you are here grumbling against the manna himself. None of us naturally has what it is to follow God rightly. And so God must raise us to life again. God must bring us to salvation again, and he will not do that through this person or that person. No, he will do it through Christ only. And so he says to them, he says, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, everyone without exception. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he says about himself, he has seen the Father. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, and anytime Jesus says that, sit up and take notice. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. For I am the bread of life. He says, you want bread from heaven, you want manna like Moses gave them. He says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and then they died. Is that truly what you want? And he points to himself and says, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. So that one may eat of it and not die. I am living bread. Something that I've made a lot of bread and I would never describe it as living unless I left it on the counter for too long. What he's expressing here is that this bread will not just sustain you, it'll bring you to life. It'll bring you to walk in a new manner. It'll bring you a new heart. It'll bring you everything. And they said, well, that sounds pretty awesome. Kind of like that water out of the well that the woman from Samaria was drawing out. And he says, I've got water to drink that if you drink it, you'll never thirst again. And she's like, sweet, because... I hate coming out here in the middle of the day in the desert to draw water out of this well. But what does Jesus says? I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Fully satisfied with Christ. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness, and then they died. But this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world, and this is where he breaks the metaphor and just tells it to him plain, is my flesh. He takes it out of the picture of bread and say, it's not just bread, it's my flesh, my body. I am standing here. My body will bring a satisfaction that will bring you to life again. What is that going to be? Well, as was their habit, they then disputed among themselves. Dispute among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? 
Again, missing the point. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, sit up, take notice, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, second insult, you have no life in you. Not you have some life in you that's got a little bit of promise and maybe you can just focus on those habits. Zero. The New Testament will teach us this straight in the book of Ephesians. We were dead in trespasses and sins. What Jesus says here is if you're going to look for satisfaction or solution in anything other than me, you will not live. There is no life in us naturally. We're going to sing a song later on this morning. Rock of Ages, one of my all-time favorite hymns. What is that third verse? Nothing in my... You know what? I'm going to click forward to it so that we can actually see this. I think it's it's the next one we're going to sing. Look at this depiction that the hymn writer expresses about salvation. How much can we bring to the cross? How much life can we depend on in ourselves? What's that first word? Nothing. Nothing in my hand I bring. There's a simple message to the cross of Christ. It's to cling to the cross. No hope anywhere else. How much clothing, how much covering, how much hope, how much satisfaction, how much happiness from anything else? Naked. I come to thee to be dressed. How much ability do we have? Helpless. What are we looking to God for? Something we don't deserve something we did not pursue, something that God gives freely, helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, dirty, I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or what? I die. Wash me, or I die. That is satisfaction in Christ. There is nothing else. And my friends, we're not singing that in order to be saved. We're singing that as Christians. It is our daily dependence on Christ. It is our constant plea to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because just like John the Baptist, doubt will bubble up from the surfaces. And just like everyone else, not only do we believe, but it's mixed with an amount of unbelief. And so like the faithful man who comes to Christ and says, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. We know that we do not have the answers within us. We know that we cannot approach this world on our own terms. We must come to Christ because everything else is sinking sand. I'm relatively certain there's another song that talks about that. The Jews disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and there he uses that title. We've talked about it before from Daniel 7. If not, go read Daniel 7. Learn who the Son of Man is, and your mind blossoms into appreciation of Christ. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. He says it yet again. That the hope of the Christian life 
aims to that last day. The hope of the Christian experience is not to just live for today. And it's not to just live for our life. It is to aim to that day when God will be glorified in both the salvation and resurrection of his people and the condemnation of those who are not. God will be glorified. And his glory he will not share with another. Why does he say this? For my flesh is true food. Outside of Christ, we've never eaten true food. Everything else is a meal. Food that perishes. But it gives us an apt picture of these things. My blood is true drink. Nobody's ever drank true drink before. Not like that. And so what is he expressing to them? My body will be broken. My blood will be shed. And it is for the purpose of bringing life to you. Here he speaks of the cross. And still extending the metaphor further, verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now it's not just that you receive life from afar. Now, no, you are brought near. Near to God himself. And notice this is an ongoing thing. An ongoing being satisfied with Christ. I fear many people have a perspective of the Christian life that once we are saved, now it is up to us. We were satisfied with Christ to save us, but then now today we get to add and add and add and add to this. And I said this last week. The same for salvation is the same for the Christian walk. Christ plus nothing equals everything. In salvation and in Christian growth, Christ, let me share with you a paraphrastic um, um, uh, prayer from St. Patrick, ancient Irish Christianity, where he desires Christ in me and Christ above me, Christ below me and Christ in front of me, Christ behind me, Christ when I rise up and Christ when I lay down, Christ when I walk in the way, and Christ at all times, in all places, everywhere. That prayer is actually about five times longer than that, and my memory fades. Everywhere, at every point, anywhere in life. That is not just something we are satisfied with at salvation, my friends. It is something we are satisfied with today and tomorrow. And a decade from now, and a hundred years from now, and when our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren, all who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ through our faithfulness, should bear that message in their minds. Christ alone, the hope of glory. Christ at all points. And notice that this is in verse 56, an ongoing experience of those who have come to life. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, ongoing verb, abides in me, continues to live in me, and I in him. Again, one of the misconceptions of salvation is that it's just this thing that's happened from afar, and God's way out there, and we're here, and at least he kind of threw salvation our direction, and all of this. No, salvation is us abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in us. It is not that we have this life and now we try to guess as best as we can. No, 
We actually depend on the Holy Spirit within us. We depend on Christ who has made full satisfaction in our stead to drive our desires so that we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Sometimes that means we have conflicting desires in our own lives. Believe it or not, the word of God is not the only thing I desire. I have other desires in life too. I like cars. I don't like hunting so much. I know a lot of you guys like that. I like church history. I like books. I like organizing papers, believe it or not. I like strange things sometimes. Not everything is about Christ, but everything is seen through Christ. That is the habit of the Christian. And sometimes we have desires, we call them sins that easily entangle us, that try to pull this desire for Christ out of our heart and assert ourselves again rather than Christ. And Christ here is saying, no, you abide in me, I abide in you. It doesn't work like that. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Look how close that relationship is. He has said this to nobody else in all the history of the world. Not to Israel. Not to Noah. Not to Abraham or Adam or Enoch or Methuselah or any of the other faithful people that had lived before this. In Christ, we are brought in communion with the Trinity in a way that nobody ever expected or wanted. Because God outside of Christ is terrifying. Who wants to try to face God one-on-one without the covering of Christ? Any, any takers? No. God without Christ, the Father without Christ, is terrifying. By the way, Christ without Christ is terrifying. Christ as judge and Christ as priest are two different roles. If he is not your priest, he will be your judge. And this is one of those things that he expresses to those who have found life in him, just as the Father sent Christ. Look at that. Just as the living Father sent me, and just as I live because of the Father in a Trinitarian relationship, so also whoever feeds on me, he will live because of me. He will be as close to me as I am to the Father. That's not salvation from a distance, my friends. That is Christ in us, the hope of glory. That is, though I lose my life, I will truly find it. I will not protect my life. Why? Because those who aim to keep their lives will lose it. And those who lose their life for Christ's sake will find it. Direct quote of his own words. And he says, this is the bread that came down from heaven. It is nothing like what your fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. That, my friends, is the inheritance of the indestructible life of God that the grave itself cannot take from you. 
There are those in our spheres of influences that are facing the ends of their lives. For those who are Christians, give them this hope. The grave can pull nothing from them that God has given them. Do not let it take your hope. Do not let it make you despondent. Let it clarify the hope of Christ. Let it bring to you a comfort that is unlike anything in this world. Not that maybe you'll get better for many people that we know won't. But preach to them the gospel of Christ that they must know that Christ is sufficient even now. Christ is our hope even when there's no hope left. And if he is not enough, nothing ever will be again. Let us be satisfied in him. Let us pray. Our Father, we are grateful for Christ. We're thankful for his word, his challenge, his gospel, his flesh, his blood. We thank you that you have given to us a picture of that very thing, his body and his blood that we celebrate at communion often that we are reminded of these things, that we have seen these things, that they have held these things and consumed these things, and that Christ, though we have never seen him like Thomas, we have believed him. Because the words that he says are eternal words. The words that he says are true words, and we look not for another. We pray that we find our satisfaction in him, in him alone, no matter when, the last day comes, even if it is tomorrow. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.